Welcome back to Sports Business Take. This is episode five. I'm your host, Paul Hine. I'm here with my great co-host, Zach Creekmore. How are you doing, Zach? Doing great. How are you, Paul? I'm great, man. My voice might sound a little gravelly today. Uh, my friends and I went to Snoop Dogg in Wiz Khalifa in <laughs> Connecticut last night, so I was down in Hartford, down your way. Um, it was it was awesome, but obviously recording a podcast after yelling all night is uh, going to be a little bit patchy, so... You know, it may go in and out at times, Um, (laughs) but we have a lot of really interesting stuff today, Um, two major topics, and then um, one smaller topic, and of course, our sports quote of the week. So our first topic is UEFA has, so UEFA is the um, European, wait, what's it stand for exactly? I forget. Oh my gosh, you put me on the spot and I don't even remember um, it's the Soccer Federation for Europe. That's correct. Basically, it's, anyone it's, that doesn't know that, that's what it is. They have banned I Juventus. With the UE, but it's definitely Football Association. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. Is it like United European Football Association or something like that? I have a feeling like it is, but it's something more French. Uh, honestly, I have to Google okay, it every but... time. And it's so sad because I've written <laughs> so many articles on it in sports management classes. Yeah, well, everyone just calls it UEFA. Like, no one says, like, the United... It's the Union of European Football Associations. Yeah, right, exactly. Nobody ever says that because it's too long. Everybody just says UEFA. So, um, UEFA, which is the European Football Federation, football meaning soccer for our American listeners, have banned Juventus, which is one of the most widely known clubs in the world and one of the biggest Italian clubs, probably the biggest Italian club, Historically, um, yes. Yeah, they're the the world's eleventh most valuable soccer club from competing in the Europa Conference League for the twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four season. So they can't compete in Europe at all for an entire year. So that's huge news, and it's because they were banned for violating the financial fair play rules. Yes, um, and they were also fined twenty two point three million U.S. dollars. Uh, I think it was like 17 million euros or something like that. That sounds about so, right. So you being the big soccer guy, do you kind of want to explain some of the background of why this happened? Um, and then we can dive into it a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, so as everyone knows, and if you don't know, 2021 COVID, tough year for everybody, right? Um, really heavy impact on soccer clubs, especially throughout Europe, where a lot of their income comes from people attending games. So if you look at, teams throughout the Premier League, teams throughout the Bundesliga, teams throughout Syria, Italian League, th- teams throughout La Liga, all of their revenue was immensely depleted because there's not people in the stadium. You can't get them there, right? COVID restrictions, all of that, which are particularly strict in Europe after the big upleap, especially in Italy, where pretty much everything was shut down. Um, so obviously this hit Juventus, right? So a lot of clubs throughout this process, when they're making less revenue, um, and uh, clubs like Juventus who have high wage bills, they cut their wage bills. So players took wage reductions and stuff like that. Juventus claimed to have done that, balancing their books, but in all actuality, they did not do that at all, right? Players did not take pay cuts. Juventus just put it in their books as that and slid them the money underneath the table. Obviously breaking financial fair play because now they're making spending more money, although it's covered up, Right. It's false accounting is essentially what it is. Exactly. Right. So it's false accounting. This happened throughout the 2021-2022 season. 
Um, and this really, really impacted them. They, they couldn't handle it, right? Um, this led to them lying in shady trade deals, spending money where they didn't have it, but apparently it's balanced booking because they're selling this youth player for much more than they're actually getting, but this club's spending this much and then you're spending this much on the next player. A great example is the Miro and Pjanic Arthur swap deal between Barcelona and Juventus, um, where Maryland Pjanic was bought by Barcelona for $63 million, and then Juventus went the next week and bought $72 million after the financial fair play book checks. Right? So there's a lot of shading dealings So something's here. not adding up there. Correct. Which right. caused investigations both by right. Syria and by UEFA. Throughout they, the last... they got banned for, what, 15 games originally, right, before this? No, no. So, so they played through their Syria season, right? Okay. Throughout this season, they're dealing with a points deduction, which they've fought. Oh, and that's what it was, a points deduction. Right. right. Sorry. So originally, if you were to look at the table without points deduction from Juventus, Juventus would have finished second, which would have them playing the UEFA Champions League. That's not important to this argument. Um, but they're actually in the Europa League. They finished fifth because of their points deduction, which were, was debated and argued throughout the entirety of the season. Right. In past years, and I'm talking... 20 years ago when Zinedine Zidane was playing, um, tons of other Juventus legends that you could reference. Uh, they were actually relegated from Serie A for fixing matches, so bribing referees, right? So Juventus has a history of kind of this so, dodgy yeah, things. and being, a history of shadiness. Exactly. Having a, a kind of falsified information and accounting. And this is kind of this coming up again, right? The league's not afraid to say, hey, this is wrong. You're buying, you're spending eighty million on Napoli's best player, Gonzalo Higuain. This was in 2018, and that money actually isn't something you have. So what's going on here? That's not something that we can actually realistically support. And you deserve to be fun, punished for that because we're trying to create a sustainable league which can handle something like a global pandemic, which has really been something right. that a lot of clubs have been trying to do throughout sport. Um, so in short, UEFA have looked at this and looked at the Serie A decision of, okay, here's the 15, 13 to 15 deduct, deducted points, right? You finished fifth, you're still in a European spot, but we don't want you playing in Europe. You have this little slap on your hand. We got to we gotta slap you too, right? I think Man, that's, a bit of a I slap think that's more face. than a slap. Yeah, that's that's more than a slap on the wrist. That's, you know, <laughs> you're not playing in Europe, which is the probably the biggest soccer market for an entire year. Like, that is... A major punishment and you know it's really because um with the false accounting they could inflate the value of their players right. and particularly their younger players like their academy players uh, by changing their books and so they make more money when they do trade deals with other clubs because they're selling these players for a higher value than they're actually worth is what i understood and um, obviously it's against the rules because they're not being honest with other clubs. And in order to create a fair league, everyone has to be honest with each other, right? Like you can't have a trade partner that's lying to you and then make uh, a sound decision based on the information you have if the information is false. Correct. So the reason financial fair play has been in place in European sport is purely because of clubs like Man City, like PSG, who have large amounts of financial incomings. Um, so Juventus, similarly, if you look at La Liga, you, you think of Barcelona and Real Madrid, who have a higher percentage of money and funds than the rest of their competitors. Juventus is one of those clubs. So when Juventus is lying 
on their accounts and not being, you can say, quote-unquote, honest with other clubs, it really impacts how the league plays out and what the other teams are able to do in reference to that. So that's right, limiting the ability of... Right, it eliminates the ability of Napoli, Inter Milan, AC Milan. It creates poor competition because one club dominates financially and is able to overwhelm other teams, right? So UEFA responding to this is saying, hey, you have this FFP infraction, like they did with Man City, and I think it was 2015 when they first made the Champions League. You're not going to play in the Champions League this year, right? You're not going to play in the Europa League this year. You have to take that ban. They did it with Chelsea in 2018. They had a financial fair play for play breakage. They had a transfer ban for a year. They had to go and they couldn't play in the Champions League, Europa League, Europe Conference League, et cetera, for a year, right? It's something that's becoming more and more common as financial fair play, quote unquote, stri- like gets stricter or gets tighter in terms of the, the limits they have. But still, it, it's sad to see, but also it's deserved, right? They're yeah, fined 20, sure. 20. 22.3 million, something they probably deserve to have happened, but also 100%. like it's not – we're trying to create fair play, and that's simple, and Juventus weren't accomplishing that. So being right. punished for that is absolutely fair, and it's fair for UEFA to do that, and it's good to, good to see them apply it, and hopefully we see it applied not to the detriment of football or soccer as a sport, but kind of to the empowerment of we want to create opportunities for other clubs – I'm particularly, I'm a fan of a smaller club if you're into look, look into soccer. I'm a fan of Brighton, right? Particularly a smaller club, not something that's traditionally, quote-unquote, the big six in England, right? We want to have that opportunity, opportunity too. We're playing in the Europa League next year. It's going to be awesome. But competing against a club like Juventus, who has had false bookings, who is, are they actually playing their players what they're paying? Are they kind of, because there's no, um, what do we have in the in America the the wage cap there is no wage cap salary cap yeah yeah there is no like salary NFL, cap yeah Don't it's unlimited the, yeah right. so them breaking that it it does mess with it so that's and i know i kind of went on a ramble there I, and i'm not meaning to no no that. i mean like this is kind of your area um where you have more knowledge so uh, like i appreciated that uh like to me this incentivizes other clubs to really and, and juventus to really before signing players, look at whether we can really afford this or not and kind of stay within their means um, versus over-committing themselves, especially to younger players in their their academies. You're trying to develop talent, right, in those Mm -hmm. academy and um, other types of younger leagues um, that aren't on their full-time team. But, like, you cannot over-commit too much money to them just to get them to come to your club in the hopes that they'll develop because otherwise you're going to screw yourself over as an owner, right? You're not going to be able to operate within your means. You're not going to be able to pay your guys what you want. And then you're not going to be able to pay your staff what you want. And then what ends up happening is you get into a situation where in order to be uh, looking like you're financially cooperating, you have to lie about it, which is obviously it's ethically horrible, right? It's, a terrible way to do business. Mm. But then, you know, outside of that, you put yourself in a position where you could get fined $30 million or, you know, get a whole season taken away from you, which is essentially what's happening. Uh, I wanted to ask you, where are they going to play now that they're not playing in, in UEFA? So they're strictly playing in Syria, 
which is underneath the Italian Football Federation. Um, not playing in UEFA means they're not playing in UEFA competitions, specifically the Conference League, um, Europa League, or Champions League, which is... Yeah, I was, I was going to say Champions League is the big one, right? That's like, Yes. Other than Champions League is the one League, where you win the 100 mil. Right. Other than the Premier League, that's like the big daddy of all the soccer leagues, pretty much. Correct. So, you know, being punished in a way that prevents you from playing in that, you know, you're taking away not only um, the potential profit of prize money, but also, you know, thousands of sponsors, more than thousands, millions of sponsorship dollars, millions of um, merchandise dollars, and TV airtime, right? You don't get those TV deals that you would otherwise. So this is going to impact their club in more than one way. It's going to impact their club in, in several different ways. And I feel like they're not going to be able to pay their players as much as their players are going to want for a couple of years now. It's going to be a little bit of a domino effect. Do you think, do you think that's the case, or am I just kind of reaching at strings there? You're you're correct. They've been in a downhill effect. They're, they've already been cutting costs um, since this investigation started, since their entire board resigned. Since all of these things happened in the last, their two entire years, board resigned. Was that this year? Yeah, after this was all found out, really, their entire board or the the board of directors really went and resigned, meaning like, "Hey, we messed up. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have supported this. We don't want to get kind of like, you know, stabbed in the back for right. messing up this entire club." Um, cough, cough. But. That's what happened, right? So they they were trying to avoid investigation and trying to not be considered a part of it because they were involved in dodgy dealings. Um, but their entire so, board did resign after the industry. If their board meeting. of directors is gone, did everybody just get bumped up the chain of command within the organization, or who's running the club now if all the, I, if the board of directors is gone? And I'm not entirely sure, and I wish I really could say because I don't follow Juventus that like religiously that I would know who got hired and replaced. All I remember hearing is that, um, oh, I forget his name, and I wish I remembered his was name. Was it like the president of the club got bumped up or something? Or like the, no, uh, no, no. So it wasn't anybody at that. So like the, their director the, of football, their – Yeah, okay, the these, GM. I was going to say what's the equivalent of the GM. I couldn't think of the name, the director yeah. of football. The director of football, board of people in that type of position, there were multiple – I think it was between five and ten people who resigned, stepped away from the club and said – we apologize, but we have to. Is that their entire board of directors? I'm not sure. If it, I'm pretty sure it was close. It okay. was spoken to the media, and the media took it as such. Whether they okay. ran with that information or not, I can't say. So I effectively, am, the entire board of directors. Yes, the right. the people that were the names on that the board that, of directors, the ones that had the most poll. Yeah, yeah. The people that okay. had the poll and the connections with the media were those who resigned. People that okay. were in, more in the back room, I'm not entirely sure about because I didn't hear about it, right? Okay. But going forward, we've seen this as a trend in football. There's been five or six clubs that have been banned by UEFA. Re- disregarding all of the Russian clubs that can't play right now, right? Because of Russia-Ukraine. But it's happened with Chelsea. It's happened with... Ugh, it's probably happened with PSG. It's happened with Man City. It's happened with a couple others, right? happened with Juventus now. This is a big problem. Biggest clubs in the world. Big problem. These clubs have money. They're spending it. Financial fair play is coming in and saying, 
hey, Man City, where'd you get that extra, uh, where'd you get that extra, like, uh, 50 mil for that player? Oh, yeah, we have sponsorship money. Oh, wait, what? I, I feel like sponsorship money is um, a very broad term, right? They're, like, there should be, and within any sports organization, there should be records of who the actual sponsors are, how much the deal was worth. Like, you know, I know at the Sea Dogs, when we have, like, um, a group sale or, like, a sponsorship sale, there's a record of that in our system, right? There's uh, the front office staff shares, like a, like, a big Google Drive, and they keep track of it through that type of, um, uh, that type of a system. So, like... I would imagine that Juventus or any of these other big clubs that were putting under, you know, the extra money under sponsorship money, quote unquote, would have a similar system to keep track of it because at a club that size, you know, think about we're a minor league team, right? And that's no diss on being a minor league team, but, you know, we're not selling as high value of sponsorship deals as, uh, a Juventus would be right, mm. so like they gotta have a system to keep track of it. So like I wonder how they did uh, kind of fake that system or just not provide the information from that system into their reporting of their or on their accounting. Right, and you're absolutely right to ask that question. Um, it's not strictly in the case of Ju- Juventus. Um, their their issue was entirely with the player wages. Um, in terms of they claim players took pay cuts. Uh, Mateus DeLich is now at Bayern Munich involved in this. Club claimed he took a pay cut. He's like, no, I didn't. They still paid me the amount that I wanted. They still paid me the amount that was in my contract. So, And UEFA's going, Serie A's going, how are you not in bankruptcy? Right? right? So the entire point of this is to keep clubs out of bankruptcy and, and, and dropping out of the leagues because there's people and fans that support it and rely on it and are involved in it. And really it's their heart, their passion. Like we talk about European and American fans as they're passionate. They have heart. We talked about relegation a couple of weeks last week, right? Relegation has that. Okay. I have, I have a horse in this, but now your club's getting relegated and it's dissolving all because of financial issues. Right. Right. It seems like so, a very desperate move on an owner's part to be like, Oh, I don't want to get relegated. I don't want to have you know these negative impacts happen to me. Like I don't want to go bankrupt. So we're just gonna we're just gonna fake it, which yeah. is it's a terrible way to do business. Awful, but uh, like it's a panic move. It had to have been a panic move. There's really no other like reaction. Like this wasn't a strategic thing. You know, a hundred percent. I think you're right. It was a kind of a reaction to the COVID year where you know they weren't going to have as many fans in the stadium they weren't going to probably sell as many merchandise i don't have the numbers to back that up but you know like people weren't going into team stores and buying stuff right because they weren't in person so i i'd be willing to bet that the merchandise sales were a little bit down and so you're not making as much money as you would otherwise but you still have to pay the players what you promised them before covid so you're and this is probably a problem across a lot of different sports franchises at the time, not just Juventus, not just a couple of these different European soccer teams. But I feel like Juventus was one of the only ones that panicked and chose to take the wrong approach to it. And that's that's correct. They did panic. They took the wrong approach. 
they're paying the retributes for it now, right? They have this ban. They had a 13-point deduction. They're not going to be in the Champions League next year. That's them missing out on $25 million easily. And they're having to restructure their club in entirety because of it, right? They can't go and right. buy that 90 million pound player. There's no point to it, right? right. Why are we going to spend this money? You got to just, re, 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 they hold themselves as the highest and best club in Italy, right? That's what they consider themselves. If you ask any other Italian fan what club they hate other than their direct city rival, Juventus. Yeah, right. that makes sense. It's, it's, it's that simple. Think- do you think we'll see a lot of restructuring of the contracts of Juventus players in the next year or so based on this? Like, if they don't have the money to pay some of their guys what they're actually worth, do you think they kind of try to renegotiate with some of their players that are already under contract? Or what and, do you think, part B to that question, do you think if there is a renegotiation to try to make them um, take a pay cut, do you think some players leave? And I can, I can answer this question in, it's already happened, right? We've seen a majority of those players from that Juventus side in 2021 leave, right? They've exited the club, Ronaldo, uh, Mateus De Ligt, Adrian Rabiot's still there. But there's a couple others that I can mention where their contracts, and this is kind of the end of the cycle, the end of Juventus' quote-unquote turmoil where they've dropped down the division, they haven't been performing well, they've been going through coaches, They've been paying off debts. They're trying to recover from this. And this UEFA ban is obviously another knife in the coffin. But they've been restructuring. They're doing well. They're trying to be, I guess you could say, more honest, whatever that may be for Juventus. They're trying to balance their books and comply with FFP. Uh, But I think that adjustment and that contract adjustment is something we might see. But also I think it's something that we've been seeing throughout clubs in Europe where they're trying to say, okay, we're either going to give you big wages that are absolutely insane or we're going to sign you on a free. If we sign you on a free, you get the big wages. If not, we're paying a lot of money in your transfer fee. Sorry, you're going to be getting less, right? Dominic Zabozlai, who just signed for Liverpool for $70 million from RB Leipzig, he's on 125 k a week. Now, I understand that sounds like a lot of money, but in the world of football, a player two, three years ago who you're signing for $70 million to $100 million, they're going to be on 250, 350k a week, right? That's a lot of money. That's in, that's immense. It's insane. And football clubs are trying to be more realistic with it. And I think American clubs do a great job based on the wage structure. And then having that, without European soccer clubs specifically having that, it makes it a lot more difficult for them to not only restrict their bookings but also be financially fair, which is why FFP has been involved to those clubs that are beneath them, or not beneath them, but at a lower division, right? We're trying to be, how can we cre- create an equal level of competition between Serie A and Serie B, right? right? And that part of that is having Juventus equal out their bookings and be fair as, although you're a giant of our game, although you're a giant of the European game, you cannot be operating in immense debt while a cl- that would send a club lower down your division into bankruptcy. That's not, it's not okay. Right? right. Of course not. How do you think Juventus recovers from this? I think this is probably the best situation that could have happened. Right. In terms of Juventus, obviously there's the best situation where they don't get the points deduction. They don't get the UEFA ban, but if you get both, you're getting it where you're in the Europa league, 
you have next year where you're going to be entirely able to focus on the league, be entirely able to focus on, okay, how can we maintain the structure of our club at the simplest level? We aren't getting that UEFA money. Don't need to worry about it. How can we operate without that? And understand that as a club of we have to set up so we can be able to operate without without that. A so lot it's kind of, of back that, to basics. Correct. A lot of clubs that compete in the Champions League, in the Europa League, rely on that European money to function. They have to buy and have deeper squads, have more players. Now they're re- relying on consistent and constant that European UEFA money flowing in. And when you don't get it, you're like, oh shit. For like, bar- part of my language, but oh, right, we're, we're screwed. We don't know what to do. We have to go and lie about our bookings. We have to go and find money from somewhere where we don't right. actually have it. Right. And that right. causes a massive issue. And that's really what the discussion is about. It's not about. Juventus, we've messed our bookings. We we messed up. Although that's the start and what we can what we can label this as, right? Juventus messed up. Now they're banned from UEFA. The question is, the answer is, how can we create institutional change, both in Division Two clubs, both in clubs in, in America, both in clubs in Europe, clubs in the USL, clubs in um, I forget, like the Portland Sea Dogs clubs. You know what I mean, right? How can we create financial stability and build a world game that can be appreciated, loved by all, and create competitiveness between all these different clubs? So it's it's, kind of a system-wide change, not just Juventus itself. Correct. Maybe even a league-wide change or um, like a UEFA-wide change. Yes, correct. With the institution of FFP that's been kind of – FFP itself has been dodgy because they haven't really jabbed at PSG a ton. Man City's in an investigation, but they haven't been tagged yet in the most recent times, right? Despite arguments from other clubs. It's a institutional issue, specifically in European teams, in soccer teams. I can say I don't know enough about the South American teams and leagues, but I've seen it there too and heard about it there too, where clubs are having major financial issues caused by COVID and they're trying to balance the books. Or they're saying, well, let's go all in, spend $630 million, cough, cough, tumble in Chelsea, right? And that's just, it's not a, it's not a healthy balance where a club is able to be sustainable, where a sports team No, can it's be- not sustainable at all. That's the, that, I was literally just about to say there's no sustainability. You took the words right out of my mouth. Correct. So it's, we're talking about an institutional change that we are hoping to see instigated um, institutionalized and throughout sport, but it's something that I don't think we'll see change. And I don't, yeah. I know you don't know as much about soccer, but do you think you'll, you'll see that change? Do you think this is enough to say, okay, we, we, this has to ha- change. This has to happen beyond just Juventus. I don't know if it, it changes anything beyond Juventus. I think maybe the most it could change would be in, UEFA itself, I don't think it goes throughout the world. I think that's kind of the the limit or the scope of, of where you're looking at. But I feel like maybe you're right in the fact that this kind of year off of um, UEFA money for Juventus will give them a little bit of time to reset and uh, kind of figure out where they're headed. Yeah, and I, I hope we can see that, and I hope that other clubs can go and realize this isn't sustainable. We can't. Like and, and the obviously there's crazy money backing these teams, crazy money involved in this game. 
but it's not something you can see sustainably. I, I'm really interested to see how this goes on with the Saudi Pro League, right? FFP is not particularly involved there. They're not in UEFA. But well, it's a pretty, that's a pretty new league, right? And it's it's gaining more attention like recently. It's a it's a new league in terms of social media and the names it's grabbing. It's a new neat league in terms of money pushing it's into popularity. it. I don't know when they were founded, but it's a new league in terms of the Saudi Pro League has really come onto the scene this year. They're pouring right. a lot of money into it. If you look at what happened, right. with they the carry more Super weight league, than they used to. Right, they're putting more money into it. What's happening with the Chinese Super League, what happened with the Chinese Super League past tense, there was a lot of investment. They put a lot of money into it. They wanted to become that next thing right behind Europe of, hey, we're this. Come watch us. Don't watch European soccer. Watch us when you don't watch European soccer because we have these great players. But it never really became that. And we've seen Chinese investors in football, in soccer, dip, drop, and and have major company issues because they have their investments in these clubs and there hasn't been really a media return or a streaming return or anything of that sort where they're, although they ha- have had bigger names, have had more eyes on them, they haven't really achieved what their overall goal was, which was to be that next thing, right? And the Saudi Pro League are here trying to do the same thing. And we don't know, will that cause the same thing in Saudi? Will Saudi investors of these Pro League co- clubs, of will Saudi investors of European clubs find a financial attack Will they, will they have a financial drawback of all this money they're pouring in? Um, that's a bit off topic from Juventus, but it is, it's an institutional change in sports that we need to see where people are striving for sustainability and striving to be, how can we be competitive, which re- requires investing money and spending money, but also maintain a what is considered a healthy community and what is considered a healthy something throughout the sport overall. And I really hope we can see that change but I don't see it coming anytime soon. So I, I just had on. an idea. Yes. To kind of um, to kind of create institutional change. There should be uh, kind of like an ethics committee, and maybe this already exists, but there should be uh, – that's part of the financial fair play thing I'm sure, right, is it's checks and – it's really checks and balances for these clubs, right? Making Correct. sure that they're behaving – the correct way when they're making these dealings and, you know, signing players, trading players, whatever you want to talk about, whatever dealings you want to talk about. But each team should have like a ethics compliance officer that goes over all of their books and also is able to look at all of their dealings and say, do these line up correctly? And do we have the money? Like, is there actual investment from the owners that backs up this money. If there isn't, then we have a problem and we need to fix it. I feel like until you get an ethics compliance officer for all of the clubs, it it doesn't, there's no real limits for um, how much they can be checked. And you're, you're absolutely right there. The body that you're referencing is both an FFP and the court of arbitration for sport. Now, What those don't have, and I'm not entirely sure, but I like your take, and I think it's great to say, we need those compliance officers. Whether they be league-to-league basis, when it comes to bigger clubs, club-by-club basis, um, but it's, and you're right, because that that needs to happen. That exists a lot in American sports because there is that kind of head of the league that really manages and and has a large investment of, we want to create sustainable and competitive sport. 
right? There's a reason right. that the NFL draft, the first pick goes to the worst, what is considered the worst team in the league, right? right? It's to, to create consistent, Fairness. sustainable competition. Fairness right. of play. That's hard to maintain in a league where there isn't a draft, where the money is based on academy, where clubs have more money than others. Like a club comes up from the championship and they're broke. They're trying to get players, figure out how they're going to compete with a Man City who just won the treble, right? Right. And how. It doesn't mean they can behave unethically, right? Which is why Correct. I'm saying that there should be at least somebody to check them. Correct. There, there. I like that there has to be, and I think that's a good start for institutional change because you need to put somebody there that's willing to enforce it, right? We always talk about we want to see these changes here and there. There has to be a person who's the start of the change, who influences the change, who makes sure that, hey, this is something we're really striving for. Um, maybe it's us as interns. Even in any situation, right, we have to influence that change. So well said. Yeah. We've talked for thirty minutes on this. I don't know if there's anything I, more I can put to it. <laughs> I know. I I think we're I think we're pretty good on this. Um, so let's move on to our second big topic of the day, which is another topic that's uh, related to money and how and how it's being passed around really in sports. And um, so we're we're talking a lot about finance today. So if anybody mm. is super interested in finance, this is your episode to listen to. If not, sorry, this is what's the news this week. Um, <laughs> but so in the U.S. Congress right now, there is a bill just proposed by three senators. So it's not passed yet, but it tries to establish a uniform law for how athletes in the NCAA, so college athletes, can mm. make money um, in response to the name image likeness uh, turmoil that has been going on since uh, it was voted in that athletes could make money off of their name, image, or related topics being used uh, by companies. And so companies would pay them for that. Uh, but some state legislatures have been trying to push laws that would put their teams at advantage, right? So like, uh, like Louisiana could push a law in that could say um, – these types of companies are open to giving a higher percentage of NIL money to athletes than in other states, right? That's right. just a hypothetical example. That's not actually a, a real law, right? Like I just made that up. But that's the type of thing that could happen. So the bill in Congress would propose that there would be a national standard set by Congress for um, standard contracts for NIL deals. So, you know, there would be like a, a certain level you could get to. And so you couldn't, um, there wouldn't be any shady dealings going on. Right. Right. Um, also there are a few other things in this bill that are particularly more interesting to me. Um, some of these are great things. Oh, there's my voice. Going <laughs> uh, some of these are great things for college athletes. Some of them are, Maybe not so great. So the good part of this bill is, A, it's establishing uniform standards, right? That's that's a good thing because there won't be um, as much pushing by different states to give their teams advantages, and mm -hmm. it will create a little bit more. We were just talking about a fair play system, right? It'll create a bit more fairness in how NIL deals are done across the nation. 
Absolutely. But also, suggested benefits um, in this bill. So benefits there are benefits for college athletes suggested in this bill. It would require the NCAA schools. So, you know, anything that's not NAIA, so D1, D3, D2, whatever you want to say, um, to be more transparent about their finances and set aside some money for after college health and medical purposes, right? So, like, the first thing thing that came to mind for me when I saw this was, like, college football players, CTE, Mm. you know, they would have some support for if they develop CTE from their college playing days and they would have some money to cover their medical expenses to get treatment, right? So that's an amazing, amazing idea, right? And I think that's one of the – probably the best thing about this bill is – it gives athletes some stability throughout their entire life and you're not putting yourself at risk as much. Right. You know, like for baseball, the example would be like you tear your rotator cuff or you have to get Tommy John surgery. That's an injury that affects you for the rest of your life. You know, you're never really going to like the rehab is really long and you're never really Mm going to be quite the same ever again. Or, you know, for soccer, right? Like ACL tear, super common, right? Exactly. And easily, easily re-terrible. So there would be money to cover that if they retore it after college, right? Mm-hmm. So that's essentially what we're talking about. And then also it creates uh, long-term guaranteed scholarships. So the scholarship um, levels would improve and there would be probably more money to pass around. So those are the good benefits to me of this bill. Um, so I just want to hear your thoughts on the on the positive side before we talk about anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And the major issue with NIL, and we, we've talked about it, we've talked about it in school, people have talked about it since it came out, has been that there is no national standard, right? Things can change. There's different influences, state-by-state basis, right? And that creates issues, right? We see it the same thing with marijuana, right? And that's a very different topic. But marijuana use being state by state, well, now there's somebody going into this state and they're expecting they're, – maybe they're transferring schools. They're bringing marijuana with them. Now it's illegal in this state. They didn't know. They didn't check, right? Right. What about NIL, right? Oh, I'm transferring schools. I expect to be able to make the same amount of money that I was through NIL deals at this other school. But oh, I can't get that because of what this state believes. Maybe they don't even allow NIL deals in that state. Right. Right. So this national standard, which has been required and is going to be key in NIL's growth as a as a thing, is huge. If the so bill passes, that. let's put that caveat on it because it just got proposed. It hasn't been passed yet. Correct. All in all in beautiful theory. <laughs> right. I feel like we talk about a lot of hypotheticals, but it's okay because um, you know, I feel like hypotheticals allow us to have more ideas, right? And that's Agreed. that's good for a podcast format. So we talk in a lot of hypotheticals on here, but also at the same time, it's based off of information. So it's not like we're making stuff up. Um, but educated I agree. Guess. Yeah, educated guesses. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I thought this quote from the SEC commissioner was pretty interesting. Congressional action is the only way to provide a national uniform standard mm-hmm. for name, image, likeness activity and to draw the lines and around the boundaries that do not become simply pay for play. So basically schools can't recruit guys to come play for them and pay them like professional athletes, right? I saw a story in the on Bleacher Report the other day that 
the Maryland quarterback, you know Tua Tagovailoa. Yes. The quarterback for the Dolphins. Yeah. So his brother, uh, I, f- I forget how to pronounce his name, but it, it's uh, his brother, his younger brother, plays at Maryland, and he was offered one point five million dollars to transfer to an SEC school. Wow. And he came out and said that on a podcast, and he wouldn't name the SEC school, but. There are totally dealings like that going on, right? Where it is kind of it's incentivized to a point where it's not just name image likeness. It's oh, come play for us and we'll pay you almost two million dollars, right? And that turns college athletes into professional athletes, and that wasn't the point of name image likeness. The point of name image likeness was to make sure that they were fairly compensated for them being stars and for the schools making money off of them, but it wasn't right. so that they could become professional athletes in college. And that mm. totally changes the landscape of college sports, and that wasn't the point. And so I feel like having a, a national standard would prevent situations like the one I just gave the example with, where they wouldn't be able to offer the $1.5 million to a quarterback to transfer schools. And you're absolutely right. And that's a, Great quote, well said. At at what, and, it, and maybe it's not, maybe it's me restricting myself. I don't see, and I have never thought of national nil as a restrictment on what nil can actually do, right? We all no. know that students, in terms of the one point five million dollars, that's immense, that's extreme. It should be spread out amongst the team of saying, "Hey, you have this nil deal, yeah, but you shouldn't be getting one point five mil for it." That's not your right, but you're spending this four year career where you're really committed to it. You're spending 20 hours, not more, way more than 20 hours a week, probably five to six, maybe eight hours a day doing these sports specific things. Yeah, and D1 is a completely different level. Like D3, we spend probably 20 hours a week at least. Yeah. Oh, Between... more than that. We're, we're oh, yeah, like, way... we're, I'm sitting at 35. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, not not just between structured practices and stuff, but also the time that you have to put in the weight room. And, you know, for me, it's in the cages. For you, it's on the soccer field outside of practice, right? You know, there's a certain level of expectation of you got to put work in on your own, too, outside of mm. all the team-structured stuff. So, but that's, like, we're not paid, right? Like, that's not the point of college athletics, right? Correct. The point of college athletics is to be able to compete at a high level and still develop your game and grow, right? It's about teaching life lessons. It's not about getting mm. professional money, right? It's not about it's not about basically being able to say, I'm gonna go to this school because they're gonna pay me more, right? That's not what college athletics was designed to be. Um so I feel like having that national standard is gonna fix that because it's kind of become with there's some gray area, right? There's some gray area in NIL. Oh, absolutely. Laws, right? There, there's definitely some gray area there where schools can kind of slip through the cracks and say, "Oh, yeah, we can offer this guy 1.5 million dollars to come play for us if it's under the table." <laughs> As they probably always have, but hopefully, I, I, I like what you said. It is. It's about life lessons. It's not about finances, right? But the hardest part for me is saying. If this person's going to come and dedicate four years of their life and possibly negatively impact the rest of their life by committing to a sport, they deserve to be compensated for that. Now, is that probably in the amount of $1.5 million? I don't really know. But at the same time, if the 
business feels that their name supports their business and creates that much media coverage for them, then maybe they deserve it's to be good advertising, right? It's good advertising to have a uh, have a really good college athlete be part of your brand. That's good advertising, and especially because you see, we talked about. Um, in the MLB, right, a lot of younger athletes are getting social media following, right? It's right. the same thing across all college sports, right? Like, you know, college football, college basketball, any of these huge stars have huge followings on social media, right? So mm-hmm. if they're promoting your brand, they're going to get you a lot more advertising, right? They're going to get your brand out there a lot more. So they deserve to be compensated for that, which is the point of NIL. But right. the point is not to say, you know, we're going to pay you $2 million to come to this school to play for us, right? That's that's not the point, and no. it never was, and it's not supposed to be, which is why I think having having something from Congress that says the way the NCAA mm. is supposed to go about it is going to be a good thing for college sports in the long run. Agreed, and you're, you're absolutely right there. We're, we're speaking, and I... I think we're sounding like we're disagreeing, but we're completely agreeing, right? No, we're completely agreeing. We don't want it to be pay for play. As we want a standardized rule where NIL is going to be, this money should not be coming from, and I'm I'm just speaking in theory, this money should not be coming from the school. It should be coming from sponsors of the school that are going to the players in equal amount if they're sponsoring the entire team. Or specific NIL deals where a company is sponsoring a player because of their name, image, and likeness. Right. It it also changes the entire field of recruiting, right? Mm. You know, it's um, for athletes. It's picking with the gray areas that exist. It's picking. Oh, which schools are going to make me more money? Like that's not the point of picking a college, right? The point of picking no. a college is where do you think you're going to have the best experience? What's going to set you up best for your future, right? And what place are you going to enjoy going to? It's not where am I going to make the most money. So having the uniform standard is going to kind of eliminate that if the law passes, which like I kind of hope it does. But there is one reason I think there should be uh, – I'm personally – this is my personal opinion. There should be an amendment to this law because the part, um, the part that we haven't talked about yet is – the bill leaves off components of um, the larger NIL issues sometimes, including revenue sharing, uh, meaning whether or not schools are allowed. Oh, actually, we did talk about that. Sorry. Um, I completely read the wrong thing <laughs> because I had underlined what I wanted to talk about because it was like important to me. And then I totally looked past the underlining because it's right above the links to the articles. So I just played like a mind trick on myself. What I meant. I did the same thing when I was reading. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. okay. What, <laughs> I thought it was an article, but no, that's something I wrote down. We're looking at a doc for those who don't know. Um, <laughs> so, the bad thing about this law to me is it could also require athletes to complete three years of eligibility. So that's three years of playing their sport before being able to transfer without having to sit out a year. So if they wanted to transfer in their sophomore year of college. <clears throat> and still play sports, they would have to sit out a year. And, you know, people can transfer schools for a large number of reasons, not just for athletics. So I wonder if there would be a caveat of athletics-based transferring. I, I really hope there would be. Um, 
because there's you could feel led to go places. You could be persuaded by a coach who doesn't end up being there in a year, right? And you could really feel like uh, my coach is gone. The people that brought me here were gone. I don't really feel like I fit here anymore. I don't really actually. Enjoy my that kind of happened to a friend of mine um, in the recruiting process, not in. Mm. Not while well, he was already there, but he was going to go play lacrosse at Utica. And okay. the coach there um, that recruited him had a heart attack. Oh, my and, God. Yeah, and so he didn't end up coaching there anymore. They got a new coach, and you know, by that time, they weren't interested in him anymore. So it, that can definitely happen, right? That situation can happen. You can go somewhere. I mean, my friend didn't end up going to Utica, but – you can go to a place and then have something like that. That's a freak accident, but things can happen, right? You know, yeah. coaches coaches change jobs all the time. Maybe one coach recruits you, and the next coach doesn't want you, and you're getting screwed, right? Especially at D1, there's huge scholarship money on the line, and you don't want to lose your scholarship because it's paying for your college, right? Tuition's expensive. Immensely. And like even even speaking to that, beyond your friend, that happened to me. The coach I was recruited by, Coach Malone at St. Joe's, by the time I was coming in next fall, dude was gone. Really? I didn't know that. Absolutely justified to be gone. I, I'm happy for him. He had an awesome opportunity to go and coach somewhere as a head coach, who's our assistant coach previously. But he's the one that recruited me. Love Coach Will, love Coach Pike. He's not the one that recruited me, right? He's not the one that went, oh, I saw this Creekmore kid. I'm the one that went, no, it was Coach Malone, right? I've spent a lot of time and invested a lot of time in trying to impress Pike, and I've gotten into good standing with him and the rest of the team and become a good member of it. But at the same time, like, I, I've i thought about my sports career. Do I want to transfer? The coach that brought me in isn't even going to be here, right? Right, and that's, the, the that's coach a that thought for a lot here. of people. That's a thought for a lot of college kids. That's a, that's a pretty common thing. So mm. – Limiting the amount that people can transfer, and the transfer portal has gotten a little out of control. I like agreed we, by we far. All, we can all admit that, right? Like the transfer portal right now is crazy. There, like, I've seen stats where like fifty percent of um, college football players are transferring after their first year or something like that. And don't don't quote me on that. That's probably not exact, but you know there are things like that out there where. They're, the transfer portals are huge, right? And it creates a, um, a logjam in the recruiting system, basically, mm-hmm. where you have a lot of kids that are um, – you have a long list of kids that are trying out for a short amount of spots, and that also affects recruiting of kids in high school too. So, right, it's a domino effect. But, you know, as much of a problem as that is right now – Saying to somebody you can't transfer, even if like there's got to be an athletic caveat in there, right? Because if there isn't, if it's about they don't like the school, they should be able to transfer and then go play athletics somewhere else. Correct, and this is becoming more and more. And we were talking about it earlier. Pay to play, like professional sports. You've signed a contract. You're stuck here. We won't sell you. You've signed a contract. You're stuck here. You can't leave. Right, and that's not what we, what we want to see. As we've said throughout this entire section, we don't want to see college sports become that. College sports no. is about 
going somewhere you love, going somewhere you're passionate, going somewhere where your passion can be expressed. And especially because, like, at 18 years old, you might not want the same thing that you want when you're 20 or 21 years old. So, like, your perspective changes a lot in those few years. I know mine has just in one year of college. You know, like, before college, I thought I wanted to be a sports psychologist. Now I want to go work in pro sports. So, like, there's a big difference, right? And a lot of kids have changes like that, right? Like, one of my friends um, was an education major this year, but he didn't like it. So he's going to be a business major now. If athletes are limited to not being able to transfer because of, they don't like their major or something like that, right? And their school doesn't offer the major that they want to have, like for a hypothetical situation, right? Then, like, what are we talking about? Why are we limiting kids to not being able to, you know, pursue the careers that they want just because they're playing college sports? Like, that makes no sense, right? So, there has to be at least an amendment to this where it's it's not like they can't transfer for three years. Like that's a long time, right? You only get four years in college. That's seventy five percent of your experience gone down the drain if you don't want to be there. Right. Uh no, it's and it's insane. To and we've talked about the whole point of college is going somewhere where you can discover who you are and who you want to be. If you can't do that and that's being limited for you by an NIL contract, by an NIL law, it absolutely needs to be. um, The word you used was. I used a lot of words. I wish I could help you. The one, the one amendment, the one needs to be amended, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think this is something that NIL is a really new idea. It's, It's been what here for two years. Yeah, right. It basically. really started existing. It was put into place my freshman year of college, right? This is something that's entirely new, and it's going to require a lot of amendments, right? The Constitution has 13 amendments, but that was applied over a long period of time, something where there's been a lot of changes, where there's been different interpretations, things are changed, and we could argue that law is meant the way law is written, or we could argue law is meant the way it's interpreted, or this is what the founding – right? But the founding fathers of NIL, I'm sure we'll hear, what did they mean by NIL when it was first founded? And these amendments are going to help that definition be defined clearly, strictly, and saying, hey, this is what we want NIL to be for college kids, by college kids, so they can be supported and really be able to support not only their families, but right. be rewarded right. for the time and effort they invest into what they love and what they do. Right, And that's the biggest right. part of it for me. Not to be a jerk and correct you, but there are 27 amendments for the Thank Constitution, you. Not, not 13. <laughs> I don't know where I was getting the 13. No, it's that. fine. It's fine. I I just felt like – I don't know <laughs> if, like, I can put this out on the internet and, you know, like, I don't want us to sound um, <laughs> no, Paul, uneducated. Paul, you. You, you don't need to explain yourself. You're okay, right. There's okay. 27. Yeah, where was, like, but, the 13 from? I'm not sure. But anyway – uh, like there's got to be some changes, right? Because we're still in the very early. You're right. We're still in the very early days of NIL, and it's not perfect. And you know the laws about it aren't going to be perfect quite yet. But this is. Um, I feel like this part of it's too restrictive, right? Uh, like I understand the transfer portal has been a problem. I understand that NIL has affected the transfer portal in a big way, right? It, like since NIL has become a thing, you've seen a lot more transfers than before. 
but uh, you can't limit somebody's possibilities based just on athletics. There, you have to take into account uh, all the other things that could be a part of their life, right? Like maybe they want to transfer somewhere that's closer to home, right? Maybe they went all the way across the country, right? Like I'm from Massachusetts. Maybe I chose to go to a California school, and I'm realizing I don't want to be that far away from home, so I want to transfer back to UMass Amherst or you know whatever right. I decide. But now I wouldn't be able to do that because I'm playing college sports and I have to complete three years. Otherwise, I sit out a year. I mean, like, it could make a lot of kids forced to make a hard decision, right? You sit Mm -hmm. out for a year or you stay somewhere that you're not enjoying or you don't think is the right place for you. Which is a horrible thing to see and really something that that we, we both hope, as we've talked about, see this take a step away from and say, hopefully in this determination, this the way this law is passing, that, that doesn't pass as a part of it, that it, it can change. Yeah. I understand needing to stay for more than one year. Maybe they yeah. you've committed to this. We really want you to commit and, and be a part of our team. But at the same time, maybe a coach isn't investing in you. Maybe you aren't the person they thought you were. Maybe your character's different. Maybe you don't blend in with the people in a team, right? Right. I wouldn't say I'm the average male soccer athlete. I think I have a bit of a different personality. I act differently. I, you can, I could be call, called a bit of a quirky guy, right? But in the soccer team, I, I fit in a bit differently, right? Finding my place took me two years, right? Finding a team that I really blended in in the second that I joined, I found that in swim, right? Right. Really so, a different sport, something that I'm not really that great at, like, Sure, I'm the sixth best breaststroker in the men's GNAC. Right. Whatever. That doesn't say a lot, right? Right, yeah. I, I'm but I found people that fit who what I want to strive for, what I want to be. Nothing to go like I fit in really well and I love the men's soccer guys. I just I fit in di- fit in differently with both groups. No, I get you. You can you can totally expect one thing when you go into college, right? You can expect it to be a certain way. And then it turns out to be a completely different way, right? Maybe the coach that recruited you was a really nice guy. This is a hypothetical, by the way. This is not a reflection on uh, my coach at all. I love Coach Sanborn. (laughs) Well, no, I'm just saying that was going to sound bad if I completed that sentence without saying that. But uh, my point is you can go in and have the coach be a completely different guy than what you thought, right? That happened to one of my friends who went to play at another D3 school baseball in Maine. And I'm not going to name the school because that's, I'm not trying to call people out, but he went in, the coach recruited him, seemed like a nice guy. And the first day of practice, he was kicking kids out, cutting kids like the first day of practice. And it turned out this guy was really only invested in the program for himself and trying to advance his coaching career. So five advancing people. Yeah. Yeah. Five or six of, uh, my friend's recruiting class, his teammates have now transferred. Wow. So that's yeah. huge. Right. So situations like that can happen, right? And that's not, that doesn't happen at just the D3 level. That happens at D1s too, right? Coaches sometimes aren't what you thought they were when they, when you recruited them. And you should be able to transfer if you aren't enjoying the culture and the environment that you're in. Mm. But I think maybe a way to, um, help this or amend this would be instead of um, doing it by the number of years that you're there, you can limit maybe the number of times somebody transfers, right? So like 
we have five years of NCAA eligibility, including if you go to a JUCO, you get two there, and then you get three years at a at a four year school. So there's a possible five years of eligibility maximum. Let's right. say this is just a hypothetical, but there can be a maximum of two to three times that you transfer. You can yeah, you know, pick whichever number you would like, two or three, and you know, we don't have to discuss the difference between transferring two or three times, but doing it that way versus saying you have to be there for a certain number of years, like a contract would make a huge difference. And absolutely. You're correct. Being able to give that player that freedom of, Hey, we want to be able to support you and help you find the place where you really fit in the place you really love the place where you're able to be the most realistic and authentic version of you and achieve your dreams and become the best that you can possibly be. Right. And maybe that requires a transfer or two. Maybe that requires, Hey, I have to, I can't, I can't be part of this anymore. It doesn't, doesn't fit who I want to be. doesn't fit my ethos. doesn't fit my ethics. And that changes throughout a college career, right? I could say that my ethics, my beliefs, my demeanor, the way I speak, the way I act has changed significantly throughout my college career every year, right? There's been two years. Like, oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. You change a lot, right? So like, like we talked about, you're not going to be the same at 18 when you're getting recruited that you're going to be at 20 or 21 when you're playing college sports, right? Mm. Like it's not the same. You're not in the same perspective in life. So you shouldn't be uh, committed like a contract. Like you're committed to playing sports at the school, right? But you shouldn't be locked in to the point where you can't do anything about it. If you don't like it. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. All right. But this is, this is going to be huge for NIL. This is a great thing to see where it's becoming a national standard, right? Like we've talked about. It's a great thing to see where we can see amendments made to this, hopefully, where there's going to be changes consistently. not Hopefully not too consistently. We don't want to see annual changes that are making big changes every year. But we want to see some no, form of consistency. No, because that would confuse things. Right. Some form of consistency where, hey, this is what we want NIL to be. Here's something that didn't work. Okay, we can change that and create this ideal vision of, what do we want NIL to be? As I said before, for college students, by college students, supported by companies, supported by the government, supported by schools, supported by the NCAA, et cetera, right? It's, right. I, I'm excited for it. I hope, I know you're excited for it. And I hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I hope that everyone can hear, like, that we're pretty involved and passionate about this issue because we've seen or been close to people who have experience these type of things um that are affected by this obviously like most of my friends are d3 athletes right like i don't have a lot of friends dealing with nil deals but you know you could totally apply the d3 experience to a d1 experience and say how would it change right Mm -hmm. so we kind of i'm not to say like we know what we're talking about but like we have enough perspective on it to be informed to have a good opinion on it absolutely yeah. All right. So I do you have anything else to add on that law other than like we hope it passes but there needs to be some changes? Yeah, no. I think I think we've covered it really well and I think uh I I don't know I don't think there's anything else I can say on it. <laughs> yeah, no, me either. All right. Um so I just wanted to quickly shout out the um women's soccer world cup, right? So Absolutely. I don't know why I said it like that. But so I I saw a couple of interesting facts about um, 
like surveys that have been done. So uh, particularly about U.S. soccer fans. So 45% of U.S. soccer fans were found to be more interested in women's soccer than a year ago. And I wonder if that's due to the World Cup, right? It's got to be, right? Like, mm. There's more interest in that. Uh, the NWSL is starting to grow a lot more like we've talked about. And another 45% of U.S. soccer fans have been following women's soccer for six years or more. So, like we said, they're starting to gain traction. By the way, that was information from a Sports Business Journal article. I want to be able to cite my sources, but... Sports um, Business Journal is awesome. If yeah, you don't yes, already, If you don't already follow them or are on their email list, you must be. You have to be. Yeah, it is like, crucial information. It really is, and um, I'm sure you took Dr. Woodside's class where you had the Sports Business Journal magazines. Those yeah. are really helpful, too, especially for us. Like, the other day... I went through all of those magazines from the first semester. So it was like 16 magazines, and I was trying to pick out connections. This is a side note, but I was trying to pick out connections and message them on LinkedIn and be like, you want to connect? So (laughs) I probably messaged like 30, 40 people going through those magazines. Um, So it's it's totally a great – like if you're looking to work in sports, it's a great way to A, make connections, and B, just get more information about what's out there. Um, so, like, we get some of our stuff from them for sure. Uh, I thought one thing was cool, by the way, just a little side note. Uh, I reached out to a couple people from Front Office Sports, which is a lot of the a lot of the articles that we talk about is from Front Office Sports. So, like, I reached out to their social media people, and they connected with me, and I was like, that's sick, right? <laughs> um, it's a light flex. Right, yeah. I followed their podcast producer on Twitter, and he followed me back. I was like, that's dope. Right. So we're starting to make that's a little side note about me making connections, but and sports business journal and shout out for an office sports, I guess. But back to the women's world cup, there's increased attention right on the women's soccer uh, space and it's drawn in big sponsors. And that was kind of the point of why I wanted to shout out uh, the women's world cup was because you've seen some of the commercials with like Frito-Lay and Visa, like they're getting big sponsors now, which was not the case probably I'm guessing in the last women's world cup. Correct. And it's, it's, it's good to see. Um, and it's hard to speak on Frito-Lay and Pepsi and these, these things that historically and continuously sponsor world cups, both on the men's and women's side. Um, but it's definitely something where it's good to see 45% more of us soccer fans, they're considered interested in women's soccer. That's huge. Plus another 45 who've been following it for six plus years. That's massive. It's, it's just right. amazing growth in the game. There's infinite and seeing potential to committed to it is huge, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good trend. They're, they're trending up. So yes. uh, I wanted to shout them out. But let's get on to yeah. our sports quote of the week. Sports quotes of the week. I'll let you go first since I just talked a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my quote, I've been watching the X Games a little bit lately. Uh, thought it was really cool. I've been into more sports this summer, as I've probably talked about way too many times. I don't know about on this podcast. Hopefully I'll get a chance to. Um, but this quote is from 14-year-old, and I, I know I'm going to say this wrong, Gui, nah, G-U-I-K-H-U-R-Y. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds guy right to Kiri. me, Goy. Goy, Goy, Guy, Kiri. I really, and I'm sorry, I know I'm butchering this. Um, I should have Googled how to pronounce it before I read down this. No, it's all good. All good. It happened. But he said, Tony inspired everybody and personally inspired me so much when we landed the 900. 
I just said, oh, I want to do that. Corey did exactly that on Friday, landing a 900 during the men's skateboard event. That's slightly less head spinning than that than Curry's best. Two years ago, he did the first 1080 in X Games history as a 12 year old during the men's skateboard vert best trick to become the youngest gold medalist in X Games history. Wow. Wow. But also, in skateboarding right now, we're seeing a lot of young people get involved. And I'm forgetting the names, but if you follow it, you're seeing it on social media. By the yeah, way, I mean, he's a great job. He's, compete, he's like competing on a world stage at 12 to 14 years old. I couldn't even imagine doing that, right? Um, and I think just to go back to the first part of that quote, Tony Hawk was so huge for mm-hmm. um, for the skateboarding world that it just translated to multiple different generations, right? Like he was around in the 90s, right? And it translated to them. But it's also translated to our generation and even the one under us, right? I would say like yes. a twelve year old is probably the generation under us. But we're like close to close to yeah. the end of yeah, our generation. Yeah. I get I get what you're so, saying. Yeah, right. So like the fact that he can translate across multiple generations is really impressive. Oh, absolutely. Like I I can say I grew up wearing Tony Hawk clothes. Tony Hawk right, brand exactly. from poles? Oh my gosh clean all right right exactly but it speaks like seeing a player or seeing an oh zach oh i lost zach Us. <laughs> um, I was so, I was I'm glad that. you joined back because I was about to end the recording. I was like, okay, folks, we'll be back with a part two. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got I, we're on my laptop now. Something's fixed. We'll figure it out. My phone's okay, on the cool. charger. Didn't give me that ten percent warning. It's killer. All right, but oh, it's okay. It where, where did you leave us off so we can continue from there? Uh, I I was just saying like how Tony Hawk was translating over multiple generations. Mm. And I, absolutely, as as it can speak to Tony Hawk, spoken to the 90s, spoke to us, spoke to the next generation. And it's great to see young people really taking that and creating greatness in skateboarding. Very unique sport, different from a lot. We talk about board, we haven't talked about board sports yet in our podcast. I hope we get to. I might, I might, I might be pushing the bear there. <laughs> but no, no, I, I mean, I'm down. It's something that I don't know a lot about. So I would be interested to see. I'd be interested to see a little bit more about it. Um, I mean, I've kind of always been a little interested in surfboarding. Uh, mm. I almost considered buying a surfboard, but then I realized it was two grand and I was 16 and I couldn't afford it. So I decided not to do that. Um, but yeah, it's something we can definitely talk about for sure. And um, it, definitely in the skateboarding world, it's kind of crazy to see that a 12 year old is competing on a national, not even a national world stage, right? The X Games mm. is it's the biggest stage in skateboarding, really. So uh, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I'm gonna move well, on. One thing if, before we move on. Yeah. Okay. And what I love what I love about it so much is if you're young enough, you're good enough. Without a physical boundary in a sport, if you're good enough, you're young enough. Wait. No, no, you had it right. Getting the quote wrong, but it doesn't matter how young you are. If you're good enough, you're good enough. Right. Right. Seeing that in a sport, seeing that, which is not something we see a lot, and it, it, it's really it's really great to see. It's something that brings it's me inspiring. a lot. 
right? Um, okay, I'm good there. <laughs> All right. All right, cool. Uh, so my sports quote of the week was after um, – so just to put a little uh, context for the listeners, Jonathan Taylor, one of the NFL's best running backs, mm. wanted to sign with the Colts, right? So he's been in contract negotiations with the Colts, uh, his team, his current team. And basically they weren't willing to pay him what he wanted – and so, so he asked for a trade, right? He he sent in a trade request to the Colts. Um, he was like, "If you guys aren't going to pay me, what?" Um, this isn't this isn't the quote, by the way. But he basically the situation was, "If you aren't going to pay me what I think I'm worth, I'd like to go elsewhere." Um, so this is what Colts owner Jim Ursay had to say about the situation: "If I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor's out of the league, no one's going to miss us. The league goes on. We know that." The National Football League rolls on. It doesn't matter who comes and goes. It's a privilege to be a part of it. Mm. So while he is technically correct that, you know, the National Football League will still exist if there wasn't any Jim Irsay or there wasn't any Jonathan Taylor, that's a terrible precedent to set for your players, in my opinion. Right? Like basically saying we're not going to pay you as much as you want because we can just get somebody else, right? The the league moves on. That's a terrible precedent. That's a terrible way to attract players to your club. As like, if I was a professional athlete, right? I would basically be like, well, why would I want to go play for your club when you have a history of not being consistent with paying guys what they are worth? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a ballsy move, right? He's going and saying, okay, I don't want to trade you. I want you at my team, but I'm not willing to give you what you're worth. And I think it kind of goes back to the Juventus issue before where we're trying to fit into this wage structure, trying to fit into what our club, what our organization is worth, right? And it's kind of a hard thing to do. And saying that to a player, setting that precedent of, we don't care what you want to pay, get paid. We're going to pay you what we can pay you and you're in contract with us. Yeah. Now, I mean, like, that's the bottom line. Has, I feel like there has to be some level media, of negotiation, right? Yeah, right. right. The, the thing was saying it in public, right? Like, there's always some level of negotiation where, like, a player may not get exactly what he's asking for, but uh, the team's usually willing to compromise or meet him at a certain point, right? Like, meet him halfway or whatever between what they think he's worth and what he thinks he's worth. But just... Coming out to the media and flat out saying, we are not going to... Mean, he didn't say directly we're not going to pay him what he's worth because we can just get somebody else. But that's effectively the message of the quote, right? Yeah. Like, just flat out saying that is a terrible way to, A, promote your brand, and B, like you're not going to have good contract negotiations with a lot of your players going forward if this is the precedent you're setting. Correct. He he's effectively isolating his franchise from the ability to effectively support and communicate with players in a respectful way because he has made a poor media decision and I really hope it wasn't advised by his media team. Yeah, I wonder, was, what I wonder what their PR team thought about this. I, I wonder know. like I wonder what their PR team thought about this because I wonder if they there's no way they pre-screened that and accepted that as like a, a acceptable thing to say that 
that seems like a quote that's kind of an in the moment thing, but he, I'm guessing I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but I'm guessing he probably regretted that after. Absolutely, because we all know that he's going to hear about it from the league. He's going to hear about it from players. He's going to hear about it from this guy. Now they're going to. It's going to live on for a long time. Yes, this is this is something that's going to haunt the Colts franchise throughout their next season and throughout multiple issues whenever they go into a contract negotiation and they can never speak about a player publicly this this way again, specifically from an ownership standpoint, because we aren't creating a community here, right? And I, I wrote an essay this week where I spoke so much into what I really want to create as a professional in sport, and it's really all about community. Now, when you're not supporting your players and not say, saying, hey, we don't recognize your worth, you're not worth this, you're worth what we're paying you, you're not really creating healthy communication, nor are you creating a community where fans understand the player, fans understand the organization, and can really support it, right? A player right. can't and support it's the not... team, a team can't support the player. It's not sustainable for relationships long term, right? You talk about, you know, a lot of players get attached to franchises and want contract extensions. Nobody's going to want a contract extension from you if you're like, well, we're just going to pay you what we think you're worth and that's it, right? Nobody's going to want to negotiate. Nobody's going to want to stay there because there's not going to be any good faith in the organization. Correct. And when there's no good faith and there's nobody staying there, you can't build anything. Right? The Colts are a franchise who at the moment, and for a long period of time, have been in quote-unquote despair. Right, They haven't been successful because they haven't Pretty been... Pretty much since Peyton them. Manning. Right. Pretty much since Peyton Manning. You're right. It's a good, good shout. But if you're not building anything and you're not willing to change how you act, you're not going to find success in any way or form. Right, And I think this is going to see... We talked about it with Juventus. We talked about it. In NIL, if we don't see institutional changes and regulations, both on a specific organizational level, but also in a specific league level, how can we see success, both financially and athletically, right? If we aren't willing to support and we aren't willing to say, hey, we recognize, yeah, you're worth this. And we, sorry, we can't pay you what you're worth, but because we can't pay you what you're worth, we're willing to recognize that and say, hey, you need to trade? All right. Uh, we don't yeah. want to. We really would love to have you on our team. How can we support you in other ways? Maybe that's a conversation that could be had. Right. But and it's something you know, that, like, the way he said it is just wrong. No, of course, yeah. And I completely lost my thought, but basically what I was going to say was... Oh, no, I completely lost it. Sorry. Um, You're good. I feel bad. I must have rambled on. I feel... <laughs> no, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. It. Uh, I'm just a little bit tired because we got home at one thirty in the morning last night. <laughs> so, Snoop Dogg had you going. Yeah, no, it one hundred percent did. It was it was a great experience. Uh, I'm sure you've been to the Xfinity Center, right? Being in yeah. Connecticut, it's yeah, awesome. It's awesome. That was my first concert, so it really? was it was sick. Yeah, that's a good it first concert. Sick. I have to be it honest. It was. It was great. It was great. Um, <laughs> but basically, to wrap up the quote, I, I think it's a weird precedent to set, right? Mm -hmm. uh, from an ownership level, you want people to think highly of your team, right? Because otherwise, how are you attracting fans, right? If, if people don't have anything to attach themselves and say, we like how this is being done, what's the point of being a fan of them, right? I guess maybe one of their players, but, you know, 
how can you keep their your players there if you're not negotiating with them, right? That, oh, this is what I'm saying. It's it's wrong on a moral level, right? Mm. So like I understand that like a lot of sports franchises care a lot about the bottom line, right, and about how much money they're making, but you can't let that and we saw this with Juventus too. You can't let that impact your moral code and how you operate. That's what I was going to say before that I completely lost track of. Correct. And we could probably do a whole other episode on sports ethics and how crucial it is to running your organization in a way that is going to support, create community, and, and build that fan base. And, and ethics is a huge part of that. And this is definitely a, a step away from both moral, ethical, and even human treatment of people that are part of your organization and part of your, what I hope, if I was to run a club, part of your family, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I, like maybe there just has to be a perspective change to or a mindset change to really um, get them to a point where they can accept that at least we need to negotiate, right? Maybe we don't think we can afford to pay this player what they're asking for, but let's at least try to get close to something that they would find reasonable, right? And mm. that's part of good faith negotiation. That's part of contract negotiation, but they don't seem to be willing to negotiate, which is something that we don't see very often, at least this publicly. Um, yeah, that that's pretty much it. Correct. We don't see it this publicly very often. Right, and I think... I think this speaks to a larger issue in the NFL at the moment, and we could probably speak a lot on this, of when we've seen organizations like the Ravens go into contract negotiations, and they get stretched out, and I think the Colts are saying, we don't want to be that franchise where we have this big player, we have this guy who we know is good, we want to play him well, we want him to be a part of our team, but we go to a contract negotiation and you say, oh, I'm going to leave now, but now you're having him for $330 million because the organization just doesn't want to lose you, right? I, I think it's communicated wrong because there's such a better way to say this from an organizational right. media perspective standpoint, from a community, from a f family standpoint, etc. right? But in the simplest way, the Colts are saying, we don't want to be taken for $400 million, right? We don't want to be taken for this insane amount of money, right? although you might and be worth it, and you are so important to our franchise we don't want to go into that, put us in that situation where we're going to lose. Right. And if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. But it was just definitely phrased wrong. Correct. Absolutely. I I really hope that this is something that can be gone back to. And I'm sure this guy will be asked about it again in the media, in an interview, in, a, in Hopefully they learn podcast, from it, right? whatever, That's... where he can correct what he said and really right. speak to what the Colts franchise stands for what he means as an owner. Right. Of Hopefully they learn from it is, is basically, that's a good way to wrap it up. That hopefully exactly. that they, they learn, learn from, from your mistakes. Experience. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. I think that's probably a good place to wrap the podcast for the day. Um, we did, we did a lot today. We got an hour and a half basically. So a uh, lot of, a lot of content for you guys. And um, this will, it'll be really easy to edit this too, because you can clip it right in the, uh, in the platform, so I won't have to do two and a half hours of iMovie editing. Yay, which is, Paul! Which is great, which is great because it'll save me a lot of time tomorrow. You have um, an hour to watch The Bachelor. Go... Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't watch The Bachelor, but 
but I have and I have an hour of free time that I wouldn't otherwise. Um, go follow us on socials if you're not already. SBT underscore podcast on Instagram and SBT.pod23 on TikTok. And I want to get a YouTube up soon. I want to get a YouTube up soon. We can sure. work on that. I'm going to be back yeah. in Maine. I'm going to have life. We can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be back in Maine probably next Tuesday for sure. Um, and, oh, yeah, our next episode, we're going to have a guest, hopefully. Well, I'll talk to you off air about setting up a time for that because um, I have to email her too. But, um, but yeah, there's a little teaser for you guys. We're going to have a guest next episode. So uh, tune in for that, and uh, we'll see you next week. Whoa!